Hi and welcome to episode 68 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today I have a very special et- uh, episode for you. I have two guest experts. I have um, Abby Smith-Ryan, Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan, and I have Professor Craig Sale, both of whom I'm very pleased to bring back to you, who've been um, on this podcast um, uh, at least once, uh, and Craig's case, uh, too many times. <laughs> um, so today we're going to talk about something um, very interesting, which is going to be about um, beta-alanine, or beta-alanine, depending on which part of the Atlantic you, you come from. And um, I'm going to base this off the recent position stand that um, came out by the International Institute for Sports Nutrition in their journal. Um, and uh, the lead authors were um, Abby Smith-Ryan and Eric Trexler. Um, and uh, Craig and myself were also um, co-authors on this paper. So let's just quickly um, introduce um, yourselves to the listeners uh, you know there's a chance that um, people have heard previous podcasts with you guys on but Abby could you just give us a quick overview as, as, as to who you are? You bet um, so I'm an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill I've been here as my fifth year um, heavily involved with sports supplement research. Brilliant thank you very much and Craig yeah, so I'm a professor of human physiology at Nottingham Trent University. Um, I guess that the major focus of my work is on the uh, exercise and, and nutritional triggers for adaptation in both muscle and bone. But I've got a particular interest, of course, in, in muscle carnosine. Yeah, excellent. So, you know, there was, there was quite a few authors involved in this, this paper, of course, uh, as with all of the ISSM position stands, but Abby... You and um, Eric were the uh, the primary authors there. Perhaps then, Abby, you could just give us a, a quick overview um, as to why it was necessary to do this this position stand. Yeah, you bet. So um, Eric Trexler is my PhD student, so that's why we were both leads on the paper and um, pulled it all together. And actually, uh, the ISSM has had been asking me to put this together for probably the last five years, and I held Dr. Antonio off for a while just because I don't think it was ready, and it finally got to a point where I think we had enough literature to consolidate and and create a position statement, and I think, as readers will see from the paper, that there's a lot of people that still misunderstand the use, the supplementation side, and really the effects uh, of beta-alanine, or beta-alanine, as you guys call it. Um, and so I think it's just a good initial starting point. I think um, you know we'll have to potentially revise this in the coming few years based on some of the literature coming out, but it's a good starting point. Yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting because it's one of those it's one of those sort of funny sounding things that actually you could ask a lot of people about beta alanine and they, they don't necessarily know a lot about it. Um, particularly the, the, the actual evidence behind it, but it is an extremely popular substance found in um, pre-workout formulas, for example. You'll, you'll often walk down the high street where you have your sort of, you know, sort of GNC type sports nutrition stores and usually there's a half dozen pre-workout formulas and you will see beta-alanine in there. So we're not talking about something that's particularly rare. But, but Craig, 
Um, I mean, we're going to get into the, the meat of all this, but I think it's worth, if, if, if we could sort of describe what beta alanine is uh, in the context of, of, of why we would take it as opposed to, you know, it's not a vitamin, it's not a mineral, there's a specific reason for taking this, this product. So by way of introduction, perhaps you could, could sort of give us that overview of, of beta alanine. Yes. So, so beta-alanine is a non-proteinogenic uh, amino acid. Um, but in terms of uh, the sort of way in which we use it for exercise performance, it's not really beta-alanine we're interested in. It's, it's actually carnosine. And so beta-alanine is, is one of the amino acids that form up the dipeptide carnosine. The other one is, is histidine. And so what we're really interested in is is using beta-alanine to increase the amount of carnosine that we've got in our, in our muscle. Now, we can do that because beta-alanine is the rate-limiting step to the synthesis of carnosine in the muscle. So, one of the problems that you've got, if we go back a step there, one of the problems you've got is if, if you give carnosine, there's an enzyme in the blood and in the gut uh, called carnosinase that's got such a high activity that it immediately breaks down that carnosine into its constituent amino acids. So that is beta-alanine and histidine. So in the blood, there's a very, very low concentration of carnosine. It's in micromolar concentrations. What, of course, you can then get is the muscle tissue taking up the beta-alanine and the uh, histidine, and there's an enzyme in the muscle called carnosine synthase, which forms those two back together into carnosine inside the muscle. So the, the muscle concentration of carnosine is in, the, is in the millimolar range, so much, much higher than the blood concentration. Now, if we go back again one step, why beta-alanine? Well, basically, if, you, if, you, um, if you've got carnosine accumulating in the muscle, it needs both beta-alanine and histidine. Histidine is pretty abundant in the body, and it easily gets into the muscle and, and works well with the carnosine synthase. And that's not so much the case for beta-alanine. You can endogenously produce beta-alanine in the liver from uracil degradation, but it, it, it's not quite so abundant, and it doesn't get into the muscle quite so easily and, and form this relationship with carnosine synthase so easily. So basically, it's the beta-alanine that limits how much carnosine we can get into our muscle. So that's why we feed beta-alanine. Excellent. And, you know, we're going to discuss the various aspects of this and, and uh, maybe get more into some of the mechanisms and the roles of beta-alanine. And, and as you said right there, really what we're actually looking at is, is carnosine. But, um, Abby, you know, I think before we get into that, maybe we should sort of step back a bit and look at the bigger picture in terms of um, the real world as it relates to why we actually might want to be doing this sort of thing. Um, and by that I mean, you know, uh, there are all kinds of physical activities that people will get up to. Um, we've explored um, many times throughout this podcast the various ways in which the body will respond to training and molecular biology and you know the various physiological adaptations that occur from different types of training and so on but there is a very specific area um, that this is relevant to as it relates to um, the types of training that people are doing and, and we'll explore 
um, those you know anaerobic aerobic systems etc a bit deeper in a minute but could you give us a bit of background as to why this is relevant to to um, sort of fitness and performance sure well in a, in a very general sense um, really carnosine acts as a muscle buffer so the the goal is to help me the pH of the muscle, and it does that by sequestering hydrogen ions, which is one of the primary causes of neuromuscular fatigue. So, essentially, what we're talking about here is something that is, um, is it essential or is it a non-essential situation? Is this, is this something, Craig, that we really, really do need to do, that anyone needs to be taking this product, or are we talking it's, it's more of a specialized scenario? And, and obviously, I appreciate there'll be some context on this. <laughs> There's that word again. So, so absolutely. I mean, I think, I think if you look at the three broad physiological, suggested physiological uh, roles for carnosine that might relate to kind of exercise performance, one is its role as, as everybody says, as an intramuscular pH buffer. The other one is over its potential role to increase calcium sensitivity of the, the contractile apparatus in the muscle. And the other one is by acting as an antioxidant. So without any doubt, the, the, the primary role or the, an undisputed role, if you like, is in intramuscular pH buffering. So if you think there about the types of exercise performance that might be limited by um, the accumulation of hydrogen ions and where that might contribute to neuromuscular fatigue, you are largely talking about high-intensity exercise of somewhere between kind of one to six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes, somewhere in that kind of range. So in that sense, if you think that's the primary role, then, you know, certainly not everybody needs to take it. Yeah, I mean, I, the reason why I, I find that... It's in... a very, you know, specific situation. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry, the, you, you were cutting out there. So the, the reason why I'm super interested in this is because I mentioned at the beginning, you will find that beta-alanine is in pretty much every um, sort of pre-workout formula. But I guess what I'm trying to get to is the relevance of taking beta-alanine for anyone that's doing any kind of, of workout. Now, of course, a lot of people will take pre-workout formulas and don't really need to take them. But if you're only training two, three times a week, and that's the only time that you're um, getting exposed to, to beta-alanine um, through, through that supplementation, Abby, do, do you think that um, that is relevant, or do we do we need a more specific supplementation strategy for beta-alanine? You know, I think that is one of the driving factors why I wanted to write the position statement, is that, you know, you mentioned it, it's in every pre-workout on the market and post-workout. It's in several blended products, and people are still taking it wrong. So a single dose of beta-alanine in a pre-workout um, will really not increase muscle carnosine the way it's supposed to. So a lot of times people, you know, they're taking it and it's not working the way it should be. Um, but as you both know, it's a, the tingling and the paresthesia that people like, they think it's working. And one bolus will give you that tingling. Um, whereas really we need... Um, a more concentrated or split dosing for a longer period of time. So the general recommendations are split doses of about two grams, 
four times a day for about four weeks. And if you look at most pre-workouts, some pre-workouts have a bolus of four grams in one serving. Um, some are less, you know, one gram. And so generally speaking, that's not going to increase muscle pregnancy. Right. And I guess there's another important characteristic to this, isn't there, Craig, that, um, you know, we do find um, carnosine uh, in the diet and there are people with certain dietary preferences or restrictions that may have a greater need or not. Um, I mean, could you quickly describe what I'm talking about there? Yeah, so sure. If you if you look at you know um, where you get B twelve in, in the diet from, you're largely talking about the ingestion of, of meat and fish. So um, if you look at you know types of food that might have relatively high concentrations, you're talking about turkey, chicken, other meats, uh, certainly some seafood like um, prawns, etc. Have quite high concentrations of, of B alanine. So you know it stands to reason that those uh, countries where you've got a high meat you know, consumption, they tend to have quite a high beta alanine intake in their diet. So if you look, for example, like, you know, the US, Brazil, uh, Australia, they, they tend to have a reasonable intake of, of beta alanine in their diet. Um, and if you look at, um, at the other end of that scale, if you look at vegetarians, for example, who've got a very, very low uh, meat consumption, there's very, very little uh, beta alanine coming in in the, in the dietary intake. Yeah. Um, so, Craig, also, um, you know, what readers will get from the paper is they'll also understand that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but irrelevant of how much you're getting through your diet, where even if you're getting pretty significant amounts from your diet, there still is a benefit potentially to supplementing beta alanine, though. Is that is that correct? Yeah. I mean, well... I suppose, again, it comes down to, to how you think it's going to work and how you want to use it and what you're using it for. But yes, I mean, certainly to optimize concentrations in the muscle. And we don't really 100% know exactly what we mean by that yet, to be honest. But, but certainly to optimize those concentrations, then uh, you might be requiring an intake that's slightly more than you, you, you might be wanting to get from, from meat and fish intake. Great. Yeah, and we'll explore... Um, as you know, I'm well into context, so we'll, we'll explore those different contexts, um, males and females and different types of training and young and old and so on in a second. But I think um, you had mentioned paresthesia, uh, Abby, perhaps you could, um, you know, uh, tell us a bit more about paresthesia, why it happens and link that to the safety profile, because uh, obviously some people may not like that feeling, uh, they might be concerned about what's going on, um, maybe you could enlighten us in that regard. Sure, well it's interesting because, so the general mechanism is that it saturates these mass-related genes that, um, receptors that fall in the skin, so generally the paresthesia occurs on the back of the hands, and the back of the neck, um, however not everybody feels it, so, and there's one paper that suggests, um, you know, an Asian descent may increase your, your sensitivity to it, but there's really not a lot of concrete data on that. So some people feel it, some people don't, even though it's saturating those receptors. As far as the safety goes, um, the majority of the literature suggests that there's no harmful side effects of this paresthesia. Um, 
the major thing that we see is a reduction or potential reduction in taurine. But there's really not a, long, a lot of long-term data, um, but it is a non-essential amino acid. Right. Okay, thanks. So, um, you know, we've, we've already explored a few things here, and Craig has already mentioned that um, beta-alanine supplementation um, has, does seem to improve um, high-intensity exercise performance by actually increasing the muscle carnitine content. And as Abby, you were saying, uh, the reason why that's important is because it enhances the intracellular proton buffering mechanism, which um, we can explore in a minute, but clearly would have a benefit in, in some situations. Um, so if we break this down then, uh, guys, into the different types of, of exercise, um, maybe we can explore why someone might want to consider optimizing their beta-alanine levels. Um, so Abby, uh, as far as anaerobic exercise performance is concerned, perhaps you could explain uh, what's going on there and, and, and how beta-alanine supplementation uh, could play a, a beneficial role to certain kinds of athletes. Did you say anaerobic exercise? Anaerobic, yes. Yeah, well, so it, it goes back to what Craig had said. The, the most undisputed mechanism is this pH buffering. And so if you think about anaerobic or higher intensity exercise, um, typically we see an increase in hydrogen ions and a rapid drop in pH. And carnosine essentially can help maintain the pH and help an individual to go longer, so increase training volume potentially, as well as um, increase recovery, or so potentially do another repetition um, more rapidly. Great. Um, now, are we talking um, about this being relevant to people uh, with relatively low levels of training? So even even for them, it's you know, in, let's say they're engaging in yes, anaerobic high intensity training could be some lifting, could be some high intensity interval training, um, but maybe you know they're doing it maybe two three times a week um, and maybe for more, more recreational purposes. What what is the relevance to those sorts of people? Craig may have a different opinion. Um, I think based on what we see, if they're taking it regularly, that group of people will also see a benefit. Um, my view on that is if you can make exercise feel a little bit easier, you may get some of those untrained individuals to do it more often. Um, so beta-alanine may help with that, may help them, you know, to do a little bit more volume and maybe be able to, you know, do a little bit more, um, you know, repetition, that sort of thing, and then get more out of it, and then continue to exercise. Yeah, so I guess it's, it's you know, considering as far as we know it's safe, as long as you don't mind the potential paresthesia effect and you realize that that's perfectly normal, um, and as long as you're not concerned about the financial implications of, of paying for this, although you may not have ambitions to be an Olympic athlete or um, you know have very specific performance goals, it could potentially play a role um, in improving your experience and enjoyment of training and therefore um, you know we all know how important it is to exercise consistently and regularly and perhaps for those that are working with people who, who that may be a concern, it could potentially be a useful strategy to, uh, to help with, with, with improving that, that exercise behavior and, and, and experience overall. Well, can I pick up two things there? Yeah. 
So one is it's important to note that you don't need the paraesthesia to get a potentially beneficial effect of the supplement. So that's quite an important one, and that's, that's quite a popular misconception you see on social media, etc., etc., and even in conversations with people. Sorry, Craig, so you can don't you... actually need the paraesthesia. Hey, Craig, can you, you broke out there. Could you just, just quickly uh, repeat what you just said? Thanks. Yeah, sorry. So... Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, so so basically I was just saying that that actually one of the popular misconceptions in the social media and when, when you talk to people is that you need the paraesthesia to have an effect of beta-alanine. Now that just simply isn't correct. You can get a perfectly acceptable um, you know, ergogenic benefit from the supplement even if you get no paraesthesia at all. So it isn't required um, for the action of the supplement. So that's an important sort of point, I think. Um, and I guess my focus is, is or, or my consideration is slightly different to that in that, you know, generally speaking, I wouldn't advise recreational athletes to be taking this supplement until they've gotten, you know, all their other things sorted out. So until they've optimized their training, until they've optimized their diet, etc., you know, any supplement I wouldn't necessarily consider, you know, taking in those individuals unless, as you've just rightly said, you know, there's some in yeah, there's some issues over exercise tolerance or something like that, and then of course it might be of additional benefit. So that that would be my two points to make on that. Yeah, and that, yeah, I I mean, you know, I've mentioned many a time throughout my podcast that it's important for us to recognise the various tools that are available, and as practitioners and coaches, this is just another tool in the toolbox. And one of the purposes of this podcast, of course, is to help people understand not just the mechanisms and how it works and so on but also to gain an understanding of when it is or is not necessarily useful um but but um you know i would certainly agree that we need some sort of hierarchy where we prioritize food first and the right kinds of exercises but as abby pointed out there could be some rather nice strategies there for people who Clearly, any of us that have worked with pers- in a personal training environment, there can be plenty of excuses <laughs> given by people not wanting to continue their training sessions, and that perhaps could help. But it's only going to be marginal, of course. Um, Abby, well, well, enough, let absolutely... me say... yeah, sorry, Abby. Yes, I just want to say I totally agree. I honestly, um, based on the literature, I don't recommend that most people take beta alanine, but. At this time, I find that everybody takes it, and it's a, uh, it's more a means of let's increase their knowledge base so they know what, what it is that they're actually taking. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, look, it's quite clear then that beta-alanine generally enhances high-intensity exercise um, lasting over 60 seconds, um, and there are greater effects on um, open endpoint exercise bouts such as time-to-exhaustion tasks, which, of course... Uh, uh, for anyone that's uh, uh, training people, coaching and so on, time to exhaustion is, you know, is an issue that's worth dealing with. So it's a nice little strategy there. Um, Abby, so bringing it back to you again. So aerobic exercise performance. Then this is something that normally when you read the literature and they, t- you know, talk about beta alanine and what it's useful for, they really never talk about aerobic exercise and as Craig was suggesting a lot of the uh, you know the internet Twitter gurus and so on will constantly go on about its use in um, anaerobic scenarios and that sort of thing but 
um, perhaps you could help us understand why this also may be important for aerobic exercise performance. Sure. Well, I will say, too, if you look at the position statement, one thing that I really wanted to do in that is to show some statistical ways to look at the data. So that's why we did some relative effect calculations. And that's where these you know, summary points are coming from. So that when collectively looking at the research that has been done, it does show potential improvement on these aerobic performance measures. And it's really coming from two things. Uh, well, first, you still are, are going to accumulate hydrogen ions at the end of an aerobic bout. So it's, it's using still that um, buffering mechanism. But then also it comes back to that idea of potentially increasing volume. So you're able to go a little bit harder, a little bit longer, and therefore increasing this aerobic open-ended um, type of activity. Sure. And of course, we, you know, we, we don't tend to do only anaerobic or only aerobic exercise. We do a blend of these things. And um, in previous podcasts, we've explored periodization theory, for example, and you know, realistically, one way or the other, we all tend to periodize what we're doing training-wise, whether it's within the week or we actually do, you know, really quite structured approaches to periodization. So, of course, um, there are going to be scenarios within that periodized training plan um, or within season or out of season, depending on what your sports are, where this may play a role. Um, and, um, again, that's why it's important to look at this as a tool in everyone's toolbox, um, potentially. Um, so, uh, Craig, um, also in the position stand, we uh, talk about the um, role that beta-alanine may play in um, attenuating neuromuscular fatigue, um, particularly in older people. Could, could you um, just tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, I, mean, I guess there's a couple of papers out um from from Jeff Stout's group, which Abby was involved with, that have shown this uh, kind of improvement in the physical working capacity of the, the fatigue threshold with um, beta-alanine supplementation. And there's also this potential that you 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 know you might feed into one of the other possible mechanisms of beta-alanine, and that is to increase. Um, the calcium sensitivity of the contractile apparatus, so therefore you make um, the, the, the muscle contraction um, that little bit more efficient, I suppose. Um, and I, I guess there's some in vitro evidence to support that effect. Uh, there's some broader in vivo evidence that might point towards that effect. Um, and certainly there's some, some contrary evidence that we've re recently produced that suggests that, that that might not be the case. Um, however, in the, in the recent study that, that where we've shown sort of no real effect on, on neuromuscular performance from the point of view that you might expect if you'd had an increase in calcium sensitivity of the contractile apparatus, we did see a reduction in the half relaxation time, which we're now trying to explore as far as what the mechanism for that might be. So I'd say, you know, broadly on neuromuscular performance, there is some suggestion that, that an elevation of muscle carnosine might be beneficial. Uh, um, but there is also some equivocal evidence to suggest that maybe... Yeah, sorry, we lost you there again, Craig. So we'll, we'll um, 
uh, hopefully come back to that in a second. So, Abby, um, also one thing that um, um, we've looked at in the paper is the role that this might have with actual strength outcomes itself. Obviously, we've talked about its role in, in supporting the buffering process in anaerobic activities, but in terms of the actual outcomes related to strength training and the influences that beta-alanine may have on that. I've, I've had some rather mixed findings, I understand. So perhaps you could tell us whether or not this is a, an area that is um, currently relevant or promising or we just don't know yet. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the majority of the data on these big like, outcomes, as you mentioned, we're not seeing much of an effect on beta-alanine. Um, however, I think it's probably very similar to creatine and, you know, those few papers that combine the two, we see it, it's more of a matter of potentially maybe able to do a few more repetitions. Um, so going back to the training volume, opposed to beta-alanine is not going to increase strength uh, outright. Sure. And another area that, well, no, I mean, of course, um, directly it may not play a role, but obviously indirectly um, through its other actions of improving buffering, um, obviously that, like you said, can affect training volume and that can play quite a major role, of course, in how we structure our, our uh, strength training programs and subsequently um, what we're able to achieve as a result of those adaptations and hopefully um, result in, in gains of various sorts. Um, the other area that we briefly looked at in the paper is an area that I'm very interested in. I know Craig has done a fair amount of um, research with his uh, interests in bone health with the military, but was some potential um, role that this could have for tactical athletes. And I love this idea of a tactical athlete. You know, we think of athletes as football players, rugby players, sprinters, uh, tennis players. But of course, um, soldiers uh, um, are athletes. Um, special forces soldiers are athletes. The things they have to do, you know, dropped out of um, aeroplanes or, uh, uh, you know, amphibious uh, operations uh, above water, below water, different altitudes. Um, a great deal of physical training and preparation um, is required for those people. And of course, uh, this is not just something that athletes and recreational athletes should look at. Also, potentially, um, tactical athletes, i.e. soldiers. Um, do you have anything to add on that, Abby? Oh, me? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the initial data is really interesting. It's, I mean, it's all coming out of one group, really. Um, Dr. Jay Hoffman out of... Central Florida, and he's been able to work with that population directly on some performance outcomes. Um, I think when you look at all three potential mechanisms that Craig mentioned, oxidative stress, calcium sensitivity, and the neuromuscular fatigue, I think this tactical group has some really potential, um, or you know, could be potentially beneficial. I think we need more data, but some of the initial um, components, you know, may have a, a positive, specific, you know, military component uh, benefit. Sure. I, I, I mean, I really do find that stuff exciting. And I think as we um, start to explore the ramifications of, of what we're doing with this research, you know, I think that goes well with, like here in the UK in particular, I think we've, we sort of dropped the word sports nutrition as it applies to us as professionals. We tend to use the word performance nutrition now. So like I'm a performance nutritionist and I like that phrase because although I'm 
um, helping people um, with their nutrition and their supplementation strategies to help you know them perform better. Um, that could be anything from yes, a traditional athlete, but it could be other kinds of, of athletes, like we've said, tactical athletes, soldiers, could be ballet dancers, could be you know musicians that are dancing around on stage. There's all sorts of different things that we can apply the, these um, approaches to. But bringing it back to um, where we commonly find this stuff, um, which is in your sort of sports nutrition um, uh, repertoire of, of products, usually in your combination, your sort of multi-ingredient workout products. Craig, um, you know, how, how, do the, how do things look in terms of the evidence as it relates to beta-alanine combined with other sports supplements? Yes, I mean, I think one of the things I, you know, I start from the point of view I'm not a massive fan of these multi-component um, products, i.e., you know, multi-component, you know, supplements all in the same tub, if you like. Um, I, I very much doubt we, we will ever really get to the bottom of what may or may not be going on there, if I'm honest. So I tend to work from the fact of combining the supplements sort of independently, if, if you like, but with a means to, um, you, know, uh, f you know, further extending the ergogenic benefit. So I think there are a couple which um, have shown some promising results. One is the combination of um, beta-alanine with sodium bicarbonate. Um, so there what you're trying to do with the, the chronic supplementation of beta-alanine is increase the muscle buffering capacity. And then with the acute or sort of, if you like, short-term supplementation with sodium bicarbonate, you're looking to elevate the extracellular um, buffering capacity. And so there may be, you know, you, you're, you're kind of, I, I guess, taking care of both ends of the dynamic buffering system there as far as um, the exercise response is concerned. And we've shown some broadly interesting results when you combine those two supplements. There's only one study, that's the study by um, Tobias et al, that's shown really uh, almost a, a double benefit of the supplement combined as opposed to each supplement on its, on its own. But um, other supplements have been broadly positive, although with quite sort of, as, as you would term it, sort of marginal effects. The other one, as Abby pointed out a bit before, was the, the combination with creatine, and I think we need quite a bit more data on, on that, particularly in how the two supplements are combined. But um, there is, again, some, some broad evidence that, that supplementation of the two at the same time or, or where they overlap slightly could well be beneficial to certain types of, of performance. Yeah, and uh, you know, because uh, again, in the in the sort of the sports nutrition um, um, popular sort of um, you know world of, of supplement stacks, you know, they, they sort of I think they they, they like the idea of um, what uh, bodybuilders have done for years with their uh, not exactly legal um, supplements. Um, they, you know, they tend to stack these things together. So, of course, they like to present these things as stacks, um, various combinations. With the idea being, you know, somehow it's, it, you know, it's a superior thing. But of course, we do sometimes forget that the research is done on these things in isolation because that's how you control 
for the variables, whereas, as you just suggested, once you start combining stuff, you don't really know what did what. And I guess when you're in the real world, we're consuming thousands of chemicals just in our foods, our drinks, through the air we breathe, and I guess we'll never get to the, the bottom of that. But to clarify there, Craig, then, um, we just don't know, do we, or do we? Um, well, you've already given us the answer, I guess, but we just don't know, do we, whether there really is some super-duper um, mega combo um, you know, that's out there, which, of course, is being promoted by various supplement companies. No, we don't. And it, you know, from a, if, if you think of that from an experimental point of view, that's very, very hard to get to the, to the bottom of in a controlled manner. Um, I think one of the other things that's not really considered is in, in the same way that, that throwing a load of things into the system could be beneficial, you could, of course, they, 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 there could be contraindications in some of those things. So you might actually make, be making the situation worse. You might indeed be nullifying the effect of one supplement by adding another supplement in, in alongside it. So, I mean, you know, people always tend to have this assumption that more is better, and it's, it's not necessarily the case. So, I mean, I think, you know, if you look at you know, pre-workout supplements and these other things, if you're going to consume these multi-product supplements over a period of time, from a purely sort of beta-alanine intake point of view, there is a still, still a reasonable likelihood that you're going to increase the muscle carnosine content, provided you take enough of it on a daily basis over a long enough period of time. But what you don't really know is whether there's going to be any synergistic effect of having other ingredients in the supplement, or indeed if that's contraindicated. Yeah. No, I, I think that's an important point. And, you know, the idea that there may be some sort of competition um, for the uptake and assimilation of these substances is something that I guess in time we might get to learn about. But that is a very real possibility that they may both require similar resources within our you know, metabolism or physiology, which, like you say, may actually end up having a detrimental effect. But um, there, there is a, a topic here that's aligned to this, Abby, which is the pharmacokinetics of, of this. Is, is someone going to get an immediate benefit from uh, beta-alanine? I know we briefly scratched on this earlier in the podcast, but you know, is, is it something that you can expect results, um, you know, I take it this morning, I'm getting a benefit this afternoon, or, or is it going to take a bit of time uh, for this to actually, um, you know, become something that has a potential benefit to the user? Generally, we see that it takes a minimum, I would say a minimum of two weeks, but the majority of the data supports a four-week supplementation period. So yeah, you, you may uh, feel some immediate paresthesia, but that doesn't mean that you'll see a benefit. Yeah, and that, like like Craig was saying, you know, people do suggest um, in that well-known journal Twitter um, that <laughs> <laughs> that um, you need to feel the paresthesia to feel that it's working. Which I guess there could be a placebo effect in that regard, of course, which is another topic. I have actually done a podcast all about that for the listeners if they want to refer to that, but. Um, it is important that um, there is a, a certain loading strategy, and we'll we'll come back to that at the end of the podcast when we we get back to the um, you know dosing strategies and so on that we want to leave the listener to. Um, so, um, Craig, I mean, you know, I, I guess we should not be talking just about performance here. I know that when we discussed uh, creatine, for example, in a previous podcast that you and I did. 
we, we talked about the performance benefits of creatine, but also potentially some of the health benefits. Um, so could we possibly be looking at the same thing with beta-alanine? Is this maybe more than just a performance thing? Yes, there is, there is that possibility. I mean, you've got a number of different ways of, of looking at that. One is if we start with the indirect. So, for example, if you can increase the exercise tolerance or exercise capacity of an individual, well, if you can do that in a healthy individual or you could do that in someone who's not so healthy, then theoretically there would be a benefit to doing that. So there's the possibility, of, for example, of increasing sort of exercise tolerance in those with, you know, vascular disease, um, or those um, who are, um, you know, struggling to, to get an amount of, of, of exercise done. So if you can improve the exercise capacity of those individuals, there may be indirect benefits to doing that. There is also some emerging sort of evidence, and much of it is based in, on in vitro work, to be honest, but there's some emerging evidence that the carnosine may have roles in terms of um, protecting against psycholipotoxicity in um, diabetics, uh, in um, protecting against cancer, um, and in, in a few other sort of, you know, um, sort of neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative diseases. So there's, there's some emerging evidence on that front, but I would suggest that a lot of that evidence is in vitro based, and we haven't necessarily translated all of that across into humans yet, but there's, there's certainly some exciting possibilities there. Yeah, and I guess also that would lend some weight to the, the actual importance that um, high-quality sources of protein um, might have in the diet, um, in that whole sort of is protein healthy or unhealthy debate that still exists um, um, right now. So, Abby, um, of course, as with anything in research, um, there's plenty of questions that are still um, remaining. Uh, sometimes there's more questions than answers. But over and above what we really know about beta-alanine, which is, you know, its primary benefit is really by increasing muscle carnosine concentrations and therefore um, optimizing or improving the um, buffering mechanism uh, within skeletal muscle. What else is there that you think remains in terms of, of the questions that researchers are or need to be thinking about with this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, a couple things come to mind. Initially, I think it goes back to the, the mechanism of calcium sensitivity. I would like to see more data on that, um, which may then, you know, help educate some decisions on using it in clinical populations um, and, and create them some nice work with the initial work with calcium sensitivity, but I think a, a little bit more on that area. And then based on some of the in vitro data, um, evaluating some potential effects of the carnitine in different areas of the body. So we know that there's carnitine within the brain, eye, and heart, um, but there's not, it hasn't really been translated um, in vivo and, and really what are the implications of that. Great. So, guys, you know, we've covered uh, pretty much the main aspects of, of beta-alanine. Obviously, um, people should read our uh, position stand and that will give them really the, uh, uh, the real meat, uh, no pun intended on that, um, of what we're discussing here. 
But in a nutshell, then, there's two things I, I want to do. I just want to quickly summarize, Abby, um, you know, um, why we would uh, take beta alanine. Um, and then, Craig, if we can just finish up with um, just a, a nice, simple, uh, easy to understand um, um, idea of how we should actually be taking beta alanine, because obviously people will, will want to make sure that they're doing this right, because we made it clear that um, just taking it every now and then is not necessarily how it works. So just a quick review then, um, Abby, of, of, of what beta alanine actually does for us. Uh, generally speaking, it's going to increase muscle carnosine, thereby um, helping to maintain pH or act as a muscle buffer. Brilliant. And then, um, Craig, can you just tell us then how we should be taking this? What, what should we be doing and what shouldn't we be doing, if that's relevant? Okay, so what we really want to do is to try to load the, the muscle with um, carnosine. Um, and so far, we've got some pretty decent data that, you know, at the minimum two weeks, but probably up towards four weeks of beta-alanine supplementation at somewhere between four and six grams per day. Taking that in probably three to four um, separated doses to avoid this, um, you know, strong paresthesia response. So that's been shown to significantly augment the muscle carnosine concentrations. And we've probably got some pretty reasonable safety data up to about four weeks. What we don't yet have is any data on the optimization of, of the muscle carnosine. So, for example, with creatine, we know that there's a ceiling somewhere between 150 and 160 millimole per kilogram dry muscle. But for muscle carnosine, we don't know that uh, value yet. Um, and so that's one thing that we need to know. But we also need to make sure that we've got some strong prolonged safety data on the supplement before we would start advocating that. Great. So, you know, um, that pretty much brings us to the end of, of um, our discussion here of beta-alanine um, and our position stand. The folks that are listening, um, great thing about the uh, Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition is that it's an open access journal, so you can all go directly to um, jssn.com and, and um, access this position stand just simply look for the International Society of Sports Nutrition position stand uh, beta alanine and you'll find it there you can read it online and, and download it um, you can of course uh, find out more about um, Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan and uh, her research and her activities um, um, what's the best way of, of getting hold of you Abby Twitter, website, that sort of thing um, probably Twitter or email. Yeah, great. And what, what's your Twitter? A Smith Ryan. A Smith Ryan. Brilliant. And I'll put some links. Uh, we're just creating some pages, actually, finally. Uh, on every um, uh, podcast, we'll have a page on, on our uh, website with links uh, to all of these things so they, they can get hold of you and on ResearchGate and so on. But it's the same with you, Craig, isn't it? You're uh, quite active on Twitter, so I know they can find you um there what's your twitter again so it's at sale s-a-l-e underscore x nut and you are an x nut in fact you're still a nut, I'm still a nut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, um, 
And of course, you're on ResearchGate as well, um, and yeah. your university website. In fact, it's all linkable via ResearchGate. That's the great thing about ResearchGate, as am I, of course. Google's um, always an option. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'd like to thank you both uh, for your time. Um, it's always difficult to get um, multiple guests from different parts of the world or different parts of the country with differing internet connections and so on. But I think we survived for the most part. I hope the listeners uh, managed to, to get through that. And um, we can't always get perfect audio quality with these things, but I, I think this worked well. So um, I really appreciate both of you coming on. So thank you, guys. My thank pleasure. You That's brilliant. So uh, that brings us to the end of this um, episode on uh, beta alanine. I'd like to say a special thank you to the, uh, our podcast sponsor, which is Healthspan Elite, who make um, informed sport tested uh, sports nutrition supplements, evidence-based. Uh, learn more about them at healthspanelite.co.uk. Um, for more information about the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast, just go to guruperformance.com where you can learn more about us generally and specifically this podcast and as I said shortly and I do mean shortly we will have a page per podcast with resources and links and papers and so on if you want to um, learn more about performance nutrition exercise physiology and actually take it to a postgraduate level you can of course go learn with um, Abby at the University of uh, North Carolina in Chapel Hill or with uh, Nottingham Trent University here with Professor Craig Sale. Um, and if you want to come and learn with me, you can do so either internationally via the ISSN Diploma in Applied Sports and Exercise Nutrition, which you can learn about at issndiploma.com. Um, or if you want to come and do an MSc in Sports Nutrition, you can come do that with me at Middlesex University in London. So that brings us to the end. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another podcast back to you all very soon.